Welcome to Economics and Beyond. I'm Rob Johnson, president of the Institute for New Economic Thinking. Say you can kill my body. But you know you can't mess with my mind. So don't you can't kill my mind. You know we'll go away. We're gonna go away. Come back, come back, come back, come back. My second time. This week, I'm bringing you an interview with Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia University and director of the European Institute. Back in January 2020, I was in Davos for the World Economic Forum and had the pleasure of speaking with Adam about his work on financial history and how it relates to the Green New Deal. Though we weren't talking about coronavirus at the time, our conversation dives into how governments and society can respond to major existential crises. Adam, thanks for joining us. We, it's a pleasure uh, to be here. Uh, while I was flying here, I uh, got to read a draft of a paper that you were writing, which kind of, what I said, was the first time I've seen somebody try to create a window into the politics of climate transformation. And you talked a lot about uh, the Green New Deal and people attaching other dimensions to the Christmas tree. As someone who used to work in the legislature, I know how people put their ornaments on the tree mm. because uh, if something has to be done, a whole lot of extra garbage, if you will, gets, uh, mm. gets carried in with it. And, uh, and I saw you talking a lot in there and in your article in Social Europe relating to the challenge of U.S.-China relationship in the context of uh, the, the formidable goals that we have to meet in climate. Mm. Uh, let's, let's start by talking, I would say, as a bridge from your work in, uh, in finance. The Green New Deal, MMT, how do you see what's being proposed there? Is that... Uh, a big contributor? How, how do you see where where that fits into the conversation? Well, I guess what really grabbed my attention as a historian who started out working on the first half of the 20th century, the period of the 1930s and 1940s, is the extraordinary influence of the history of the New Deal and World War II on the climate politics of the US in the period 2018 to 2019. If you If you read deep into the policy papers such as they are that inform the uh, AOC um, vision of a, of a Green New Deal, uh, th- her stuff, uh, like, you know, all over the experience of the US in World War II, mm-hmm. Roosevelt's famous promise to, you know, produce an outlandish number of bomber aircraft is cited as an instance of the way in which the American state, the American government can stimulate innovation and uh, technical breakthroughs in the United States. The whole program feeds off the drama and the charisma, if you like, of that earlier moment in economic and political history. And that, for me, was irresistible as a, as a topic to think about. Um, and, of course, it's a, it's a, we're talking about a period of an economy which is deeply depressed, where there is very little inflationary pressure. And then we're talking about an economy which goes into war mode and where prices are controlled by by price regulations, J.K. Galbraith being one of the people involved in that. So it also throws up the whole set of issues which we're running very currently, of course, in the MMT debate about what inflation is and the role of monetary 
economics and explaining inflation. And of course, then AOC opened the door to the link between MMT and, and the Green New Deal. Mm -hmm. But as you, as you hint, I mean, the thing that I really wanted to, to focus on is this issue of what the geopolitics of such a pro dramatic, progressive, state-led program of energy transition would be. And, and if we think the analogy to World War II to its logical conclusion, of course, it begs the question, because as any historian of World War II will tell you, the war was, was not won by the exclusive efforts or the mobilization of the resources of Western capitalism alone. Yeah. They were highly significant and contributed in various ways, but a lot of the dirty work, a lot of the ground game was down to the Soviet Union and its rather different yeah. model of mobilization. So strange, that's where I kind bedfellows, of... Strange bedfellows, as they say. Exactly. Yeah. And the question yeah. for me is really... If we throw ourselves, if we, and I'm, it's, not a, it's not a historian's nitpicky kind of argument, you know, you shouldn't be using historical analogies. For me, it's more interesting to ask what happens when you do. So we're going to use this historical analogy. What else might we draw from it? And what it leads me to immediately is not just a question, a set of questions about American domestic economic policy, but also about its foreign relations. Mm -hmm. um, and the question fundamentally of how a progressive green energy transition politics, how it stands in relation to the great geopolitical question of the day, which is the relationship with the West, the United States, but not only the United States, also Europe and our partners in East Asia to China. Um, and there is an implication that one could draw from the historical example, which is that we didn't do this on our own the first time round, and we will not be able to do this on our own this time round either. So yes. we have to bite the bullet. We have to think hard about what that implies for a progressive economic and climate policy. And you have clashing or, or different philosophical traditions, different modes of social organization in the role of government in society. You know, in some of the conversations I've had here at Davos, people are saying for 40 years, in America, government has been part of the problem, not the solution in the mantra that started with Ronald Reagan. Mm -hmm. People have said the state is a source of inefficiency and they have almost deified markets. Yeah. Well, we're now in a place where very few people think unfettered free markets will address the scale of what you might call collective action and externalities that are in the mix. Mm -hmm. And so it's very hard for people who've become su successful believing in one philosophy to shift gears suddenly and know that they'll, which you might call, maintain their reputation or the affirmation of their peers. It's also hard for private sector businesses to say, I'm going to take the lead on climate and start losing market share to everybody who doesn't mm -hmm. participate and mm -hmm. make the what I'll call collective sacrifice. So there are a whole lot of things right now that are just in the West, in tension. Mm. Now you couple things with China, mm. a, a country that went through the opium wars and the humiliation of the Japanese invasion, regaining its stature as a world leader, mm. and America being frightened that its leadership is diminishing or plateauing in some kind of horizon at the hands of the Chinese. Mm. Now you go to the two different philosophical systems, the Confucian and Cartesian Enlightenment systems uh, don't deal with experimentation and uncertainty and things like that in quite the same way. This is a very, very complex cocktail to put together and see it coming out uh, constructive. But I mean, it's, it's certain. The necessity yeah. is the mother of invention. Yeah. I mean, it's certainly complex. I'm not sure I would quite pitch the difference in, 
you know, climate politics and uh, the culture of climate politics uh, between the U.S. and China in that way. I mean, the, to me, the more striking thing is that the two great Asian powers of the 21st century, the two states with the most rapid economic growth, with the largest populations, and with therefore the most on the line with regards to the energy transition, have both, despite their very different cultural traditions, found ways of embracing climate science. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's particularly striking, really, in the case of, of, of you know, Modi's India, which, where, after all, there is an outright challenge by Hindu nationalism to the authority of Western science. Yes. And nevertheless, um, Modi's uh, leadership has been one in which India has taken ownership of the climate issue. Um, mm-hmm. They have moved out of the climate justice position, which they most forcefully advocated from the early 90s onwards, which said quite reasonably that this was a problem created in the West and therefore for one for yeah. the Western powers to fix. And Delhi is now talking about, you know, um, the moment at which its um, CO2 emissions will stabilize. They're very actively embracing renewable technology. They see it not really as a competitive disadvantage, but as an opportunity for India, because in the end, renewable technologies will be more efficient. And the same is true for China. And the, the more astonishing thing, of course, is that it's precisely the, the Western, quote unquote, political culture of the United States, which is not capable of stabilizing. Um, its political system around the authority of of science, which America, of course, contributed to more than any other state. If you look back in the history of, you you refer to the fact that I'm working now on a project on the history of the climate problem and climate politics, it is America from the 60s onwards, which is really the hub of climate science, uh, also of the the new wave of environmentalism with Earth Day in 1970. Mm -hmm. Um, And it is American politics, which is grappling very actively with the question of energy and energy pricing throughout the 1970s. Um, and it's that country where, thanks to the efforts of a fossil fuel coalition and Republican political entrepreneurs, where the, where the solidity and the authority of climate science has collapsed. Yeah, I, um, I actually read it slightly more bipartisan than just the Republicans. I've well, worked on I mean, both sides you, of the aisle, and I see a whole lot of Democrats in the Senate particularly yeah. frustrating climate change, even yeah. when Obama had uh, both yeah. houses on Absolutely. his side. And this is, I think, the lesson that you know, that we have to we have to really take seriously, which is that even in, to my mind, the unlikely event of the Democrats sweeping the presidency and Congress in November 2020, the limits will still be there. Because in the Senate, there is a blocking coalition of fossil fuel Democrats and mm-hmm. Detroit Democrats that have sabotaged any previous effort to ratify right. a binding treaty. And the rest of the world has to move on. I mean, America is no longer the major source of CO2 emissions. Um, its most destructive role now is that it anchors a coalition of hostile states, which mm-hmm. builds a legitimacy around that position. Brazil, Australia, the list is long, Russia, Saudi Arabia, all potential members of that coalition. But the coalition of the willing is far larger fundamentally um, and has far greater legitimacy. And it needs to, and that is anchored on the relationship between the big three, big four if you count mm-hmm. Japan, which is a rather reluctant recruit to that number. So. Those, for me, are the stakes of climate politics this year, and they're extremely urgent because Glasgow COP26 is the moment where the COP process has to redeem itself from another period, basically, in which its legitimacy has come increasingly into question. Paris 2015 was always really a gamble on further improvement of ambition. And Glasgow is going to be meeting in a post-Brexit Britain 10 days after the American election. election. And and the moment at which the U.S. exits the Paris Agreement is literally one day after the American election. So November 2020 could not be a more significant moment, really, I think, for the future of global climate politics. It 
everything revolves around what happens at that moment. It isn't, of course, that if we have another Copenhagen, it's over. Um, but we got the wheels back on the bus after Copenhagen because the Americans, because the Europeans stuck with it, China yes. and India came on board, and Obama was willing to then do the bilateral deals. Yes. Um, but what we have in the America is what I'll call a situation where social design is too heavily dominated by money. And what Manker Olson called the logic of collective action, narrow, concentrated interests who would be, how would I say, losers in the short run, though I don't quite know what that means if you're going to sh shut off the oxygen on planet Earth. But those industries which would bear a part of lion's share of the distributional burden of adjustment mm -hmm. can dig in their feet yeah. and the broad collective well-being can be thwarted or has been thwarted. And the coalition is really interesting because it's not any longer adequate to say it's all oil-driven. It really isn't. Mm. I mean, Exxon and co. can see the writing on the wall. They know the way in which BP and Shell are shifting, for instance. Mm -hmm. um, they are moving into a position where they're advocating a, you know, a modest carbon tax. It's mm. clearly a clever strategic retreat. The real die-hard opposition comes from two groups, which is coal. Mm -hmm. And on the other hand ideological oligarchs basically people yeah. with a with an agenda that the and with enough billions to sway the american political system and a lot of people who are afraid of losing their career or yeah. who own suburban real estate yeah. but having a car for 55 minutes in each direction yeah. is not part of a system that's going to cohere there, yeah. there are all kinds of adjustments and displacements that are in the offing that are creating dread yes yeah so uh what would you how, how would you, how do I say, if you were the doctor, you've diagnosed things, what would you prescribe to move us out of this uh, stall point? Well, I mean, I really insist that, um, you know, I, 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 this is going to sound like a cop-out, but I am a historian. I remain a historian. Uh, early on, you introduced me by saying, and I'm moving from financial history to the climate future. I'm, I'm really not. I'm, I'm moving from financial history to climate history. Because I think of the entrenched problems in disciplining and um, regulating global finance as in some sense both closely related to and in fact causally linked to the yes. problems of managing the fossil fuel economy. And this for me is, an, is another stab at trying to understand the last half century of global history, this time through the lens of the energy system. Well, you know, there's a, there's a crossover that I yeah. perceive quite powerfully, which is many people on the left when 2008 happened, said, yeah. thank God this fantasy of unfettered free markets crashed and we're going to get back to proper supervision, regulation, and governance. Yeah. What emerged with Occupy, Tea Party, and what have you mm. was despondency about the role of government after yeah. the bailout yeah. distribution was quite skewed yeah. and appeared to be unfair. So now you have a larger coalition of people distrusting government as we enter into a challenge that requires collective action. I think that's a very uh, powerful... And it's even closer because the, the great despair of the American mainstream environmental politics, Big Green, was the failure of cap-and-trade legislation in 2009. That's right. I mean, this is, there is a sense in which we just don't think these histories as joined up as they should be. The first advocates of a Green New Deal were the Obama administration. That's right. they were, they were, it's there in black and white. If you, mm. if you go back to the history, it took me by surprise because you know, I had immersed myself in the financial history, in the history of the financial crisis, and I had not understood until I started revisiting this entire history from this angle how incredibly closely related these histories are. And the 
Obama administration, bona fide, has three agenda items. One is managing the crisis and doing financial reform. Another one is health care reform. Right. And the third is the Green New Deal. Right. And they sacrifice the Green New Deal to the imperatives, the legislative imperatives of healthcare, right. uh, and Dodd-Frank is likewise mutilated in that process. We say sacrifice. What we really mean is the Republican opposition, die hard as it was, required that sacrifice. That's right. Well, but it the was transfer brutal. of control of the yeah. House and then the exactly. Senate and, and then it the was, White House. It was absolutely brutal, but the legislation on cap and trade failed before they lost the majority. Yes. Um, it failed in 2009, right. and that produced, amongst the environmental left, a disillusionment which indeed closely parallels that of Occupy with 350, McKibben's new movement, mm -hmm. and the Sunshine mm -hmm. movement, which has come out of that, which are all, I think of as part of the fraying, if you like, of the coalition around Obama, and it helps us to understand the current disunited condition of the Democratic Party and the difficulty of getting on the same page in opposition yeah. to Trump. So these are, and you can say the same thing, I and mean, we're talking only about the US here, but the same is true of the European energy transition, where, there is this huge boom started by Germany, but then others bandwagoning on that model of the feed-in tariffs, which the Germans used to energize the solar and wind boom in Germany. And then the Eurozone crisis hits. And the first programs which were shut down in Spain and Italy are the very expensive um, solar subsidy systems. If you want to understand why renewable energy investment in Eurozone, which was formerly world-leading, has collapsed to mm -hmm. you know, a fraction of what it was at its peak, the logic of the macroeconomic crisis in Europe is absolutely imperative, right? So part of my project is to really tightly hook these things up, not just in the fantasy of a Green New Deal, which is how we'll respond to a crisis in future, but to actually understand organically how all the way we work back to the crisis in Bretton Woods in the early mm -hmm. 1970s, monetary dis, dis um, articulation, if you like, is linked to ructions, tensions within the energy system of the world economy. Okay. Let me take you even to a, a more distant history. When we talk about MMT related mm -hmm. to the New Deal, one can read about the origins of central banking. When I look at contemporary central banking, it's macro stabilization is one task. Lender of last resort crisis management is the second. But the third task was the original task, which was mobilizing resources for war. Yeah. Now, the enemy in this juncture is... is climate and time, it's not another society. Mm. And when I hear people say, you shouldn't have monetary finance, I'm concerned because essentially what they're saying is we want 2% price stability and maybe turn off the oxygen mm. instead of 4% inflation and a continuation with environmental transformation. By, by just what I will say, willfully blocking off that avenue in the name of price stability, that, that feels sort of like dinosaur logic to me. It, it is. And I think, uh, however, I also have to say that the, I find the, the position of the left on this to some extent tilting at windmills or deliberate yes. conflation of different issues. It's just not obvious that for sophisticated economies like those of the United States and Europe, we need anything like World War II mobilization to do the energy transition. Mm -hmm. I mean, the most dramatic estimates suggest that we need to be spending 2 to 3% of GDP right. in new investment over on top. Right. Crucially, what we need to do is stop investing and stop subsidizing fossil fuel. And if we swap the hundreds yeah. of billions of dollars which go into that every year mm -hmm. into a concerted uh, right. renewable energy drive, if we double down on R&D, and R&D spending figures are low hundreds of billions, not 
trillions. Right. Um, and you can take on <laughs> pharmaceutical deregulation and so, raise a little so bit of taxes. So there's a sense in which, um, you know, this is an irrelevant argument in, to a large extent, right? Mm -hmm. Given the scale of the deficits the Republicans have run by ruinously, you know, unfair tax cuts, mm -hmm. that would pay for the Green New Deal right. perfectly happily, right? Yeah. We, 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 yeah. the, 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 the one for me of the puzzles, really, of the attraction of the 30s and 40s as a way to think about this, I think it serves as a crowbar in the US for saying no government can do positive things, like winning the war against Nazi Germany and Imperial right. Japan. Like, remember right. that, that That's was positive, right. government did that, so therefore. But in other respects, the analogy between World War II and the climate challenge is very poor. Um, yeah. Because there isn't going to be a happy day when we win, and there's VEJ and VJ Day, and then we kiss each other and like go on to a happy future of you know the GI Bill. This is forever, forever, and, forever, forever. Right? It's a grinding process. Is the Green New Deal people kind of tout a Keynesian stimulus? Keynes yeah. said, "Dig ditches and stimulate yeah. aggregate demand. You're done." What you do with the money here yeah. is Matters, critical to whether crucial. you succeed it's, it's or not. It's not Keynes in, in that respect at all. It's actually more classically industrial policy. That's right. At the limit, if you run into any kind of financing problem, I'm completely with you. Yeah. We can finance anything we can do. The question is, do we want to do it? And, right? and what, yeah, what do we do and how does the arm wrestle of Finan who gets the industrial policy too closely. play out. I mean, I understand it in political terms, because from the point of view of AOC and the left wing of the Democratic Party, it's about linking these agendas together and creating a radical package. But from the point of view of the practical politics, I think to some extent it's a red herring. Yes. Well, we should probably continue this when we get back to New York and explore, how we say, more dimensions. But thank you for taking the time today. It's a pleasure. I uh, have enjoyed seeing you impart your insights to Davos and uh, look forward to your next studies and books and so forth to uh, illuminate things and in the context of history for us all. I think reintegrating history with economics is one of the greatest uh, contributions anyone can make to economics education at this juncture, and you're at the vanguard of that. Thank, Thank you, you very much. much. It's always a pleasure. That was Adam Tooze, professor of history at Columbia University and director of the European Institute. And check out more from the Institute for New Economic Thinking at ineteconomics.org. And I'll tell it and speak it and think it and breathe it And reflect from the mountains so all souls can see it And I'll stand on the ocean until I start sinking But I'll know my song well before I start singing